Now, I'm going to read um, Mark chapter 13 from verse 1. I'm going to read in the New English Bible. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples exclaimed, Look, Master, what huge stones, what fine buildings. Jesus said to him, You see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives facing the temple, he was questioned privately by Peter, James, John and Andrew. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign when the fulfillment of all this is at hand? Jesus began, Take care that no one misleads you. Many will come claiming my name and saying, I am he and many will be misled by them. When you hear the noise of battle near at hand and the news of battles far away, do not be alarmed. Such things are bound to happen, but the end is still to come. For nation will make war upon nation, kingdom upon kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many places. There will be famine. With these things, the birth pangs of the new age begin. As for you, be on your guard. You will be handed over to the courts. You will be flogged in synagogues. You will be summoned to appear before governors and kings on my account to testify in their presence. But before the end, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. So when you are arrested and taken away, do not worry beforehand about what you will say, but when the time comes, say whatever is given you to say. For it will not be you that speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, the father his child. Children will turn against their parents and send them to their death. All will hate you or your allegiance to me. But the man who holds out to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation usurping a place which is not his, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must take to the hills. If a man is on the roof, he must not come down into the house to fetch anything out. If in the field, he must not turn back for his cloak. Alas, for women with children in those days, and for those who have children at the breast. Pray that it may not come in winter, for those days will bring distress, such as never has been until now since the beginning of the world which God created, and will never be again. If the Lord had not cut short that time of troubles, no living thing could survive. However, for the sake of his own, whom he has chosen, he has cut short the time. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. 
Imposters will come claiming to be messiahs or prophets, and they will produce signs and wonders to mislead God's chosen, if such a thing were possible. But you, be on your guard. I have forewarned you of it all. But in those days after that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give her light, the stars will come falling from the sky, the celestial powers will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his chosen from the four winds, from the farthest bounds of earth to the farthest bounds of heaven. Well, now this evening we come to Mark chapter 13. I have entitled it, as you can see, the final public manifestation in glory of the rejected servant of the Lord. And with this discourse, which is generally called the Olivet Discourse, uh, and the parallel accounts in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, that's the fullest account we have of the Olivet Discourse in the New Testament, and also the account in Luke chapter 21 which more closely follows Mark we come to one of the most discussed passages in the whole Bible it was Campbell Morgan so Mr. Sparks once told me who surrounded with about 20 commentaries on a passage like this wiped his brow with his handkerchief and said I sometimes wish the Bible had never been written. All are agreed that the discourse grew out of the clear prediction by Christ of the temple's destruction, which was literally fulfilled in 70 AD. And the discourse has much to do with that. There are four main views. Now, this evening, what I'm going to do is introduce this chapter, and then I hope to get to verse 12. We won't go beyond that, because it is so, such a controversial passage, and I feel it's important for us to understand some of the principles of interpretation. There are four main views on this passage. The first is this. The discourse is wholly to do with the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and the dispersion of the Jewish people and was fulfilled in 70 AD. The fact that a number of prophecies were not exhaustively fulfilled then is explained by their being typical apocalyptic exaggeration and were not ever meant to be taken literally. The second view is that the discourse here is descriptive of the course of the whole age beginning with the destruction of the temple and city of Jerusalem in 70 AD and ending with the coming of the Lord. There are a number of modern commentators I can think of immediately who 
follow this view. It is quite a common one now. The third view is that this discourse is mainly to do with the end of the age and the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth view is that the discourse here brings the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and the second coming of Christ together so that we have two distinct themes interwoven together. That is the fourth view. And on that there are many, many div uh, sort of variations on that last one. Tremendous number of variations on it, which we are not going to go into. The main problem is this. Although the discourse was in answer to a question concerning when the temple would be destroyed, and the sign ushering in its destruction, so many of the statements were clearly not fulfilled in 70 A.D. Now let's take our Bible and have a look. See if this is true. Take chapter 13, verse 4. Tell us, when will this be? What? What was said in verse 2? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Tell us, verse 4, tell us when will this be and what will be the sign when these things are all to be accomplished. Will you notice that it does not say what are the signs of this being accomplished, but, singular, what is the sign when these things are all to be accomplished. Now that's very important. Because so many people refer to this chapter as the signs of the Lord's coming. The question was, what is the sign of this coming to pass? That's the question. Now will you look at the uh, same chapter, verse 6. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now, here it is, of course, the name of Jesus, not just false messiahs, but claiming to be Jesus. Well, this did not happen in 70 AD. There was one false prophet called Jesus, but Jesus was a very common name. But no one claimed to be Jesus of Nazareth. So, that's one point. Uh, verse 9. Um, but take heed to yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear testimony before them. Verse uh, 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, of course, again, we can say that in those troubled years um, of the Jewish rebellion from uh, 66 to 70 A.D., um, there, there was, of course, quite a bit of persecution preceding uh, uh, six, the year 66. In fact, that was the year when Peter and Paul were executed and martyred. But there was no persecution of Christians in Judea. There they had respite. Because of the rebellion, everyone was too bothered 
about um, sort of the rebellion and getting rid of the Romans. So the Christians actually had a respite. Then look at Mark chapter 13 verse 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. It was hardly fulfilled in 70 AD. It is true that the apostle had taken the gospel to Rome and there was a strong company of believers in the capital of the whole empire. And others were taking it to all points of the Roman Empire. But we could hardly say that the gospel was preached to all nations. Uh, then again, uh, verse 20. And the law, and um, verse 19, shall we say, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation which God created until now, and never will be. Then verse 20, And if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would be saved. Well, we can hardly say that of Jerusalem. It's true that about it is estimated by Josephus, the eyewitness of what happened, that about a million people died in the siege uh, and final destruction of Jerusalem, which was a very large number. But we can hardly, for those days, but we can hardly say that, that it could be said of that, that no human being would be saved if the Lord had not shortened the day. It seems to speak of some far greater tribulation, far greater distress, when somehow or other, unless the Lord steps in, it's not just a question of Christians or Jews. It's a question that there would be no human being alive. So that is another point. Those two verses were hardly fulfilled in 70 AD. That's our problem. Then, will you compare Mark, uh, the same chapter, Mark 13, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, now mark the word, that tribulation. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. Stars will be falling from heaven. Verse 26, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, it does really seem to me that we can hardly say from this verse that this has been fulfilled. After those days, after that tribulation, then this will happen, which surely was not fulfilled in 70 AD, but points to something further on. And, of course, quite clearly, verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in part clouds with great power and glory. He did not come in 70 AD or in the immediately succeeding years. We all know that. Will you also note that he does not say, and you will see the Son of Man coming, but, and they will see the Son of Man coming. We shall look at that when we come to it probably next week. But it's a rather interesting point that many people overlook. And they will see, either we're with him, and therefore, it's the unsaved world that sees him coming. So that verse 27 is actually synchronized with verse 26. The elect are gathered together almost immediately. Come with the Lord. Well, that will wait till next week, till we come to it. We have therefore to recognize that although it would seem from Mark chapter, from verse 4, that this discourse was to do 
with the time of the temple's destruction, the prophecies contained in it were only partially fulfilled and await some final and more exhaustive fulfillment. Now Matthew, in his account, gives support to this by giving us the complete version of the question. Mark gives us a much shortened version of the question. And if you will turn to Matthew 24 and verse 3, we read here in the same account, the fuller version, 24, Matthew 24 verse 3, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming? That's an addition. And of the end of the world, or the close of the age, as it puts in the New English. The close of the age. Now, that addition, that fuller version of the question, is all important. It's vital to our understanding of this passage. It is quite clear then that the disciples did not only ask about the temple's destruction and the city's destruction and the dispersion of the Jewish people, but they also asked about his coming, which in their mind may have been absolutely together with it, and the close of the age. Thus, I think we can say that this Olivet Discourse contains clear prophecy concerning the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, which was fulfilled in 70 AD. And then, looking, now mark my words carefully, looking through that event, looking through that event, down the course of the age, clear prophecy concerning the end time and the final coming of Christ, as if the first event was in itself prophetic of the final. We need to point out, when we come to this discourse, that it is not just to do with the temple's destruction, nor the coming of Antichrist, nor the great tribulation, nor just, as it were, the fig tree which is going to blossom, uh, and so on. Its main and ultimate emphasis is not all the trouble at the time of the end, but the final public manifestation in glory of the rejected servant of the Lord. That's why I have entitled it. That's the ultimate Uh, emphasis of this chapter. We must underline that. We've all got a dark, well many have got a kind of dark fascination in things that speak of tribulation and distress and sort of these um, horrific figures that will finally appear on the scene at the end of the age. But this chapter is not just dealing with those. It's really emphasizing the fact that the rejected servant of the Lord, the rejected Messiah, is going to come in clouds with power and great glory. Furthermore, we ought to note solemnly 
that this discourse was not given to provide us with ground for fascinating prophetic theories or imaginative speculations, nor even for some prophetic system of interpretation. I have the shrewd suspicion that many Christians believe that the Lord gave us a kind of crossword puzzle, a kind of jigsaw that was going to keep us busy for hours and hours on end trying to put it all together. The Lord never did anything of the kind. The Lord is not interested in complicated prophetic theories. That's why it is, in one sense, complex. He could have solved it all by telling us one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's the order everything will happen. He didn't. Why? Because the Lord's not interested in prophetic systems of interpretation or fascinating theories of prophecy. What the Lord is interested in is the intensely practical application of this fact of his coming again. And if only we had eyes to see and ears to hear, the whole of this chapter rings with an intensely practical application. How unfortunate it is that so often those who are most absorbed by the subject of the Lord's coming again are heavenly daydreamers. The most impractical people on earth it is a tragedy. It is, in fact, a satanic sidetrack. Why was this discourse given? I think there are four reasons. First, in the light of his coming, and in the light of all that's going to happen at the end of the age, we must take heed. Be awake. Take the chapter. Look at verse 5. Take heed that no one leads you astray. Verse 9. Take heed to yourselves. Verse um, 23. Take heed. I have told you all things beforehand. Verse 33. Take heed. Watch. Verse 35, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. We must take heed. That's the whole point of this discourse, that we might take heed. Be awake. The whole point is that we should be alive and alert, not apathetic not sleepy, not doped spiritually, like some, not indifferent, not careless, not drifting along another's momentum or the momentum of a whole company of Christians, but alive and alert, waiting for the coming of the Lord. Diligent and watchful. How solemn that last imperative is. Watch. Now, it is most interesting that every time the Lord speaks about his coming again, his whole emphasis is watch. B 
Be alive. Be awake. Don't be sleepy. Rub the sleep out of your eyes. You all know, or many of you know, that kind of feeling that you're up, but not up. A kind of thing where you see a person sort of sleepwalking almost for an hour or two after they've got up. Well, this is what the Lord is saying. Get rid of it. Shake yourself. Have a cold bath. Spiritually. Do something that will absolutely awaken you. Don't you understand? All these things are actual facts. They're going to come to pass. So don't treat them as some kind of legend or myth, but recognize that these things are coming to pass. And isn't it an amazing thing that we can actually live through these days and still be asleep? We can see some of these things coming to pass before our eyes and still be dulled and lethargic and apathetic. The discourse was not given to fascinate us, nor that we might put together some prophetic jigsaw or work out some prophetic crossword puzzle. It was given to us that we might wake up and take heed. And the second thing, it was given to us that we might understand. We might understand. Verse 5. Jesus began to say to them, Take heed that no one leads you astray. That we might understand that there are things that have signs and wonders and everything about it that seems to be so right and so good and so of God, of Christ, and it is not Christ. We might understand. Verse uh, 18. Pray that it might not happen in winter. I wonder if anyone, has anyone yet prayed that prayer? Here? Lord, when this time comes, oh Lord, don't let it not to be spiritualized this. So practical is this thing that the Lord said to them, pray. I'm quite sure the Christians did pray because it finally happened in July. And the whole Christian population got out. Do you know that every Christian in the, in the church in Jerusalem survived because of this book? They got out. Whereas a million people died in the terrible siege and famine of Jerusalem, the final slaughter of it, they escaped to a place called Pella in Berea across the Jordan where they survived to spread the gospel after the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. My dear friends, God has given us this that we might understand. This is no fairy story. No, just fascinating theory. This is given that we might understand and watch. And as we see these things happen, pray. Lord, protect our children. Lord, protect us. Lord, don't let it be in the, in the winter. If it could please thee. We might understand. Verse 23. But take heed. I have told you all things beforehand. In other words, these things have been told us beforehand so that we might understand what is happening around us and to us. Um, verse 28 and 29, from the fig tree, learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, even at the gates. You've got understanding. Not just understanding the Lord's coming, but understanding of what to do, how to take him for protection 
how to take him for life, how to take him for power, how to, as it were, experience all that is yours in him in the last terrible days of this age when the, when the breakup of all things will take place. We might understand. Oh, there's so much more that we could say about this. What is it that we're to understand? We're to understand what the will of the Lord is. That's one thing. We're to understand his utter sovereignty over all things, even satanic and evil things, such as the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation. We're to understand that through it all, God is going to finally glorify Christ. We are to understand both the birth pangs and the birth. Then thirdly, I think this discourse has been given that we might be comforted and strengthened to endure. Now there is, in some Christians, an altogether unhealthy fear of investigating and exploring the prophecies concerning the coming of the Lord. I won't say that it is in many, but it is in some. And the reason is they are filled with fear. They believe these things so firmly. They hear about people being martyred. They hear about the beast, 666 and all that. They hear about everyone not being able to buy or sell unless he's got an identity card. They hear of this great big false prophet who seems to have power over the whole earth. And if they have some suspicion that we may not all be raptured before the event, they're rather filled with, with fear. I'm quite sure it's why some people so firmly entrenched in their view that we are all going to be raptured before the event, uh, whether we're walking with the Lord or not. Uh, these, this discourse, this prophecy was given that we might be not frightened, not made fearful, not filled with horror, but that we might be comforted and strengthened to endure. Look at verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. There's the Lord's word to us. Not, there will be wars and rumors of wars. That's how most people think it. And stop. Oh. But, do not be alarmed. The end is not yet. Or again, verse uh, uh, 9. Take heed to yourselves. They will deliver you up to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear testimony before them. Isn't that a lovely little word of the Lord? Of course, it takes some courage to really take it from him. That, yes, it's going to happen, but the fact of the matter is that it's for, for something to do with the Lord's purpose. But much more wonderful, look at verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you up, now notice that, and when they bring you, not if, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is no excuse for people standing up and just preaching a message. You know, 
I've heard some people say that this is the way you should face all ministry. You just simply trust the Holy Spirit, open your mouth and speak. Of course, that's nonsense. It says when you're brought before kings and governors and when you're on trial, otherwise there's quite a lot of studying, serious studying. Study to show thyself a workman who uh, needeth not be ashamed when it comes to the word of God. Well, now then, verse 20. Verse 20. And if the Lord had not shortened the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. What a word of comfort. Now, it may not mean anything to you now, but when these times come to pass, if we should live through them, this is going to be one of our greatest comforts. Every day we'll say, well, the Lord's going to shorten this. Whatever happens, we know that he's going to shorten the thing. Well, what a comfort that is. We should be strengthened to endure. You know the kind of thing, if you feel that it's, well, it's like going to the dentist, and he says, you've only got one more time. I mean, somehow you're strengthened to endure, aren't you? It's not like having six months with him. But, uh, I mean, you, you just get, oh, one more time and I'm through. Well, you may feel that about other things, I don't know. But, I mean, you just feel, you could, you're strengthened to endure because there's a time limit. Well, the Lord has said, there's a time limit to this. Don't think it's going to go on and on and on and on. Look up. Strengthened to endure. And then look at ver verse 13. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end, the same will be saved. He who endures to the end, the same will be saved. Well, we shall look at that when we come to it in the text. But these things are told not to frighten us, but rather that when they come to pass, we might be comforted, encouraged, and strengthened to endure as seeing him who is invisible, whose grace is sufficient for whatever we are called to pass, How true that is. Fourthly, and this is a very important point as to why the discourse was given and often overlooked. This discourse was given that we might fulfill the work. Verse 34. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. The whole point of this discourse is not that we should give up our jobs or give up work altogether and sit there waiting for the coming of the Lord, but rather that we should get on with the job and do it as unto the Lord and as before the Lord. How important this matter is. Do you remember the effect of the second coming of Christ upon the Thessalonians? Quite a lot of them sold their homes, gave up their businesses, and became, as the Apostle Paul called them, busybodies. Not eating their own uh, food, but looking to the church to meet them, because they said the Lord's coming is imminent. You get this again and again, you get people saying, don't go on the house to house, the Lord's coming is imminent. Don't do this, it, the Lord's coming is imminent. There's no point in sort of getting ready another room, the Lord's coming is imminent. Much would I prefer 
Martin Luther's great comment, which was so to the point when he said, if I knew the Lord was coming tomorrow, I would still plant my apple tree today. And that's so true. Because his attitude was this, the law would say, Martin, you did well to plant that tree. And that's absolutely true. The Lord won't commend anyone who just suddenly gave up. He will say, you did not do what was right. I watched that. No, if you've got an apple tree to plant, plant it. And if the Lord comes, you've got a good conscience as you face it. Besides, remember, there's always a possibility that there is a millennium. Well, anyway, um, we'll pass on. Now let's look at the text. Those are just those few words of introduction. Now let's see if we can look together at the text itself. First of all, the first four verses. One to four. I have entitled them the destruction of the temple foretold. How simple those words. Uh, verse 1. As he went forth out of the temple. But what a universal sorrow lies behind them. For the Lord Jesus was leaving the temple never to enter it again. God's house. Think of all the history behind that Think of the, of the yearning of God. Almost in the stones of that building. Think of all the history of God's people. The faith. The tribulation. The experience. That those stones represented. It's such a simple little phrase. As he went forth out of the temple. But behind it lies a universal sorrow. With his denunciation of the scribes, the Lord Jesus had finished his public ministry, that glorious ministry which had begun in Galilee, and which we have followed all the way through the Gospel according to Mark, had finished with the denunciation of the scribes. He never uttered another word public ministry again. It was over. His public ministry, his public service was finished. He'd come to Jerusalem to the temple as the long predicted Messiah. And the leaders of the temple and of the nation had rejected him. He had found nothing in the whole ecclesiastical hierarchy and system upon which the pleasure and satisfaction of God could rest. No living faith, no true devotion, no open-hearted walking in the light, nothing but dead formalism, loveless duty, and tradition-bound darkness. And thus, his public ministry had ended on a note of awful severity a denunciation of the system unparalleled for its directness and its sharpness. Yet, even that, seemingly so hard and relentless, 
were spoken out of a broken heart. As we understand from Matthew's account. In Matthew 23. Listen, I would like to read this to you so that you understand just what is behind these four verses. Oh, this is directly after his great denunciation of the Pharisees and scribes and the whole ecclesiastical system. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem that killeth the prophets and stoneth them that are sent unto her. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And with that, he turned and walked out. He never entered it again. There was a broken heart behind that going out of the temple. Don't think that the Lord is the kind of person who could just judge something and turn his back on something without any feeling at all. It was a broken heart. He had found nothing in Israel. That is, nothing in the system. One poor widow was like the morning star heralding a new day and a new age. In her God found all that he had ever wanted from both temple and nation. Surely it's a sign of infinite grace that if his public ministry ended with the pronouncement of judgment upon the Jewish establishment, it closed before his disciples' eyes and surely the eyes of a whole invisible world that watched on with the commendation of one poor widow who represented before God the yearning and the aspirations and hope of the godly remnant in Israel. I think that's infinite grace. Now as the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, turns his back on the temple with those terrible words, your house is left to you desolate, God finally leaves it giving it up to destruction. As Christ was walking out, one of the disciples, we know not whom, drew his attention to the magnificent size and cut of the stones and of the buildings. It was this which occasioned his solemn prediction that not one of those stones would be left on another. The temple as it stood then had been the work of Herod the Great, no mean builder. As any of you who've seen pictures, I'll just show you a few afterwards of this, but any of you who've been to Israel or seen any of Herod's work will know he is one of the great builders of the world. And uh, this temple was one of the wonders of the Roman world. Although all the main work was finished, it was not fully completed when it was destroyed. The work had taken approximately 80 years and was still not finished, although the main work was done. Titus, who became emperor, 
who was responsible for the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, when finally destroying Jerusalem, was so impressed with the temple that he sought to spare it. But some stupid soldier, not uh, overreaching himself, sort of going beyond his commands, threw a torch. He got up on the shoulders of another soldier and pushed a torch through one of the windows and very, very quickly caught the wood and the whole temple was destroyed. Titus managed to save the candlestick, some of the furniture from inside, but the whole temple, according to God's word, was destroyed in spite of the fact that Titus tried to save it. But you see, even this proud Roman who became emperor was tremendously impressed. He'd not seen a building with such line and such simplicity, and yet such beauty. It was a pure white marble its whole front faced with sheet gold of simple but profoundly beautiful lines, surrounded by colonnaded and paved courtyards on different levels, the whole enclosed with huge gold-yellow sandstone walls being built with huge blocks, some measuring as much as 25 feet by 12 feet by eight feet. To all Jews, the temple represented something secure, something stable, something unchanging in a changing world, something almost eternal. To imagine, for them, to imagine life or the world, let alone Jewry, without the temple, was absolutely unthinkable. Now, I don't know whether Today, it would still be the same, but it would be rather like British people imagining the nation without the Houses of Parliament. It was just, you couldn't think of such a thing. For them, it was much more, more so. You see, they were an occupied people, already partly dispersed. For them, that temple was the very visible sign of something eternal, the living God himself, the visible token of the invisible God. It was unthinkable that such a structure, which had lasted through so many sieges and, and occupations and ups and downs, could be destroyed. So you can understand that the words of Christ made no small impression upon his disciples. Four of them, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, came to him as he sat high up on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple, probably lost in sorrow. It's a very interesting little sight. He was there alone. They went out to find him. Why did he go up there and sit down just looking at it? He turned his back on it. I think he was lost in sorrow. So remember <coughs> this about our Lord. God never judges anything without sorrow. God does not delight in judgment. It's always with a broken heart that God judges. They found the Lord sitting there alone and asked this twofold question. When and what will be the sign of its coming destruction? Now Matthew's full aversion of the question is important, as I've already mentioned. There's no doubt that the disciples, for the disciples, in their mind, 
they thought of the destruction of the temple as synonymous with the end of the world. Now, none of you here would think like that. But for them, the thought of the destruction of the temple was so absolutely incredible and unthinkable that for them, it was as if, well, that must be the end. That must be the end. And I'm quite sure that's why so many, including the Apostle Paul, thought that the coming of the Lord must be in their lifetime. And when the temple was destroyed, many of them thought, well, he must be coming soon. I mean, it's unthinkable that this, this should go. It's hard for us to understand that. Well, that's the temple's destruction. I have here the only eyewitness account we have of the temple's destruction. It's by the old Jewish historian Josephus, who was a traitor. He went over to the Romans, and so he lived. And under Roman protection, he, I, he was an eyewitness of all that happened. I cannot possibly read a chapter on it. But I just take this little bit out here for you so that you understand what happened. When the Lord Jesus said, your house is left unto you desolate. And when he cursed the fig tree and cleansed the temple and the fig tree withered. Listen, when he said, and the owner of the vineyard shall come and destroy the tenants and shall give the vineyard others. Yet did it not appear to be safe for Titus to let loose those that were taken by force to go their way and to, sit, and to set a guard over so many he saw would be to make such as guarded them useless to him. The main reason why he did not forbid that cruelty was this, that he hoped the Jews might perhaps yield at that sight out of fear, lest they might themselves afterwards be liable to the same cruel treatment. So the soldiers, out of wrath and hatred, they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught one after another, one one way, one another, to the crosses by way of jest, when their multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses and crosses wanting for bodies. The whole of the Valley of Kidron was a forest of crucified people, in some cases two or three people, crucified on the same cross. How hideous that judgment upon Jerusalem. And of course you have uh, something, I suppose, more really, but perhaps we can't really read it all. Um, some of you perhaps would like to read your secrets. It's quite exciting. Now the second thing what we look at this evening before we close is just from verse 5 to verse 12. From verse 5 to <coughs> verse 12. And now I have entitled this the first birth pangs of the end time. The first birth pangs of the end time. Let us very carefully note that Christ answers their question by first telling them what are not to be considered the sign of the end time. Now, this is very, very important. For most people look upon what's in these verses as signs of the, of the end. But in actual fact, what the Lord did was he first told them what does not constitute the sign of the end, the sign of the end time. You have all marked it, haven't you, that they didn't ask for signs, they asked for the sign. Now he says to them, I'm going to tell you what are not the signs, what are not the signs. Verse 5, 
Jesus began to say to them. Verse, compare it with verse 7. Do not be alarmed, last part, this must take place. The end is not yet. Verse 8, last part, this is but the beginning of the sufferings. Now, just stop there. Beginning of the sufferings. Authorized version, beginning of sorrows. Revised version, American Standard Version, the beginning of travail. Literally, it is this. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. And the New English Bible puts it uh, like this. Um, it is with these things the birth pangs of the new age begin. Birth pangs. Beginning of the birth pangs. Now will you also notice verse 14, the first phrase. But when you see. But when you see. In other words, now all these things are not the sign of the end. But when you see the desolating sacrilege or the abomination of desolation set up in the place where it ought not to be, you know. So that's the sign. We'll come to that next week, what it really is. We need also to carefully note that no time limit or span is given for this phase. This is why some scholars feel that we have here the description of the course of this age. In other words, what they say is this. This age in which we are now will be characterized from the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by false assumptions of the name of Jesus, political, economic, and physical turmoil and unrest, persecution and worldwide gospel preaching. Yet through it all, God will work out his purpose. It is pointed out that it is the beginnings of the birth pangs and not the endings of the birth pangs. I cannot help but feel for my part that though these things may have characterized the, this age in part, Christ was speaking of a phase which was not the end, but ushering in the end time. If Christ had said, these are but the sorrows, or these things are the travail, then or these things are the birth pangs. Then I would have said, well, maybe he's speaking of the whole of the course of this age as one great thing that's producing the new age. To say this is but the beginning of the birth pangs seems to denote a particular phase in the course of the age when something starts which ends in birth. In other words, a phase of turmoil and trouble characterized by these things which will usher in the last phase of this age. Let me put it in modern maternity language. The onset of labor pains which end in the giving of birth. onset of labor pains which end in the giving of birth. 
There is another point I'd like to make here why I'm not too happy about it just being looked upon as characterizing the whole age, and it is this. Every age has surely been characterized by political, economic, and physical turmoil. I don't see the point of it. I mean, it's ridiculous. Anyone who's a historian or knows anything about history at all knows that every phase in world history has been characterized by wars and rumors of wars, nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. What's special about that? I don't see that it characterizes this age any more than the other. It's true that persecution of believers does seem to belong to this age in a way that it never belonged to the former one, the Old Testament one. That is true. Then again, take worldwide gospel preaching. By any stretch of the imagination, can it possibly be said that this age has been characterized by worldwide gospel preaching? We can say the first century saw the gospel preached to the limits of the Roman Empire and beyond. But only in the last one and a half centuries has the world really been evangelized. For all those centuries in between, it was only Europe. And even that, we must say, was under a pall of spiritual darkness until the Reformation. So I find it rather hard, uh, myself, to uh, fully accept uh, this. It seems to me that all the evidence points to a time when all these features will be present in a singular and heightened manner, constituting something which can be recognized by believers anywhere. Hence, the need not to misinterpret them as the sign of the end. Well, now let's just have a look at these things very quickly. The beginning of the birth pangs, what are they? First of all, verses 5 to 8, religious, political, economic, physical, unrest, and turmoil. False Christ. Verses 5 and 6. Uh, Take heed that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Or as the New English Bible puts it rather well, take care that no one misleads you. Many will come claiming my name. That's interesting, claiming my name. Um, could this not cover those sects and heresies which assume his name and claim to be him? In other words, claim to hold the real content and character of Christ. I think of a multitude of sects. Jehovah's Witnesses, Russellism, Mormonism, Christadelphianism, Christian Spiritualist Church, Unity School of Christianity, Christian Science, and more and more and more come immediately to my mind. Assuming his name, although in fact having no claim to Christianity at all. Religion, yes, but not Christianity. Well, it may be. Claiming my name and saying, I am he. Then again, verse 7 and 8, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. I've lumped this under political, economic, and physical turmoil. Why? Because these things are all interrelated. For instance, War brings famine. Famine brings economic trouble. 
War brings economic trouble. Isn't it so? These things are all interrelated. For instance, we know immediately that there's war or strife, even in Ulster. Things happen on the stock exchange. Things get robbed. The Vietnam War is going to continue. Then immediately there's a reaction on Wall Street. The economy is, is, is shaken. You see, all these things go together. So I think that we look upon this really as a period of uh, political and economic turmoil. And then you'll notice bitter persecution of believers in verses 9 and 11, 12 and 13. And then in verse 10, the gospel preached to all nations. Now, whatever dear friends might feel, the, the friends who feel that this characterizes the whole of the age, if this is true, whatever they might believe. One thing I think we can say, and that is, that all these things have characterized the period in which we are living, from 1914 till the present time. It may surprise you to know that there has been no period in world history in which believers have been more persecuted than in the last generation. Now, you may not believe that. It may not be outwardly. But what with, with Hitler and, and then after that, communism, and before it, communism, it is a period in which a very large part of the earth has known persecution. But as far as gospel preaching, we have known it to the ends of the earth. Radio, television, literature, literacy programs, and much else. And of course, uh, I don't have to speak about political and economic turmoil. The 1914 war ushered in a wholly new period or phase, if you like, when one whole world that had existed for close on a thousand years just passed away overnight, never to come back again. We could stop and we could talk about it, but we haven't really got the time. The fact is that I think most historians feel that it wasn't the last world war that has really wrecked and rocked the whole world, but it was the first world war. And the last world war came out of the first world war. And so did communism. The whole thing was interrelated as if one vast satanic intelligence was behind it. There would be no such thing as communism if there'd been no First World War because the imperial powers would have united to stamp it out. But they were so locked in a death battle with the flower of their manhood, youth, dead on the battlefield that they could not do anything about it. And it stole onto the scene and became entrenched. Well, we can say a lot more about that, but we leave it. Above all, let's really understand what it is the Lord has sought to say here. The beginning of the birth pangs of a new age. This is wonderful. Don't look on the dark side, terrible as it is. Look up. This phase constitutes the first birth pangs of what? is being born of God, a new heaven and a new earth, and a perfected new man in Christ. 
Oh, I think of so many scriptures, I could immediately uh, read them. I think of Ephesians 4.13, till we all come to the unity of the, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith, to a full-grown man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Or I think of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 when he says, oh, he says, everything groans and travails together in pain, uh, and, uh, waiting for the liberation of the glory of the children of God. I think of Peter when he said that we are hastening the coming of the day of God when the heavens being on fire and so on and so on. And then he says, we're, whilst we look for a new heaven and a new earth. So don't be alarmed by this. This is birth pain. Something's being born. And it's not something satanic being born. It's not that the devil is coming, becoming incarnate, as we think, the, the, the Antichrist, but rather that something's being born of God through it all. And the whole thing is shaking. So like a, a chrysalis, something's emerging from it. Think of it like that. And take heed that you're not sidetracked by false claims, false signs, and false evidences, however Christian they may see. Some people think if a person can work a sign or a miracle, that's it. That means he's authenticated. It doesn't mean anything of the sort. And that's exactly what it says here. Don't be sidetracked by what, by what appears to be absolutely of God, but is an angel of light and a minister of righteousness. It's the devil. Neither be alarmed by all the turmoil of society around you. You're in the mainstream of the sovereign purpose of God to head up all things in Christ. It's going to end in glory. In the hour of need, in bitterest persecution, even at the cost of your physical life, the Holy Spirit will enable you to triumph and advance the purpose of God through you. Oh, I think of some who, who found this. When Latimer and Ridley were dying, and side by side, and the man came with the torch, uh, one of them, I don't know which, I think it was Ridley, became a little afraid and said, I don't think I can bear it. And Latimer said to him, play the man, Ridley. This day we shall set on fire a torch that will never, in England, that will never go out. And they did. I think of Tyndale as he died at the stake, the fire around him, oh God. Open the King of England's eyes. Within one year, the eyes of the King of England were open. And he ordered that a copy of Tyndale's Bible, virtually Tyndale's Bible, should be put in every parish church in England. There are so many stories like this. The Holy Spirit came upon people at the last moment and enabled them to triumph. They're all only flesh and blood like you and me. And surely there are times in which I couldn't go through it. I could. Don't say that. The weakest of us. If there's any person here who thinks they can go through it, I feel sorry for you. You're the first that's going to collapse. But if you're afraid, then you're in a wonderful position because you will depend on the Lord. You will look to him. The Holy Spirit's going to come into you at the time you need him. Like dear old Harolan Popov, when they put a gun to his head and said, now we're going to shoot you. I'm going to count up to ten, and on the ten, I'm going to shoot you. And Harlan Popov, who couldn't understand it, thought that he should be quaking like some terrified child. Instead, just all he could think about, why, in a moment, I'm going to see the Lord face to face. And he said such joy came that when the man didn't shoot, he counted up to ten and didn't shoot, it was the biggest
shock he had. <laughs> now, Harlan Popov told us that himself. He couldn't believe it. He said he felt he'd been cheated. And he said, he said to us at the time, if you remember, how could that be? Surely it was the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit when you read some of the stories of those who gave their lives and the things they said at the end. How just ordinary people, many of them, not famous people. Well, I just say, don't be afraid. In the hour of need, the bitterest persecution you can imagine, you can imagine the Holy Spirit will enable you. So don't think about it beforehand. Say, what shall I say? I must plan it all. No, 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 you just trust the Lord and he'll do it for you. And remember this, endure to the uttermost and you will know final deliverance. Verse 13 is very interesting. It says, he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. That's how it says it in the authorized version, the revised version. But you know, what it really means is not, he that endures to the end of the age will be saved. But he that endures completely, he that endures to the uttermost, <clears throat> he that fully endures, the same will know deliverance. What deliverance? Not, not to be saved by the blood of Christ, you've already been saved. But you'll know that wonderful deliverance if you'll only endure to the uttermost. The Holy Spirit will come upon you in your final moments, whatever they are. Maybe it will be deliverance from physical death. But if not, you can be absolutely certain it will be a deliverance into the kingdom. Now, someone says, oh, I don't like that. But just you wait. This is exactly what the apostle said in Timothy, 2 Timothy, and chapter 4, and verse 17. Now, he's already said he knows he's going. He said, I'm being offered up. My, my course is over. My course is finished. I've run the race. It's a crown for me. Now listen to what he says. Verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me that through me the message might be fully proclaimed that all the Gentiles might hear. This was when he stood before the, the emperor. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. What does he mean? He's going to be executed. What does he mean I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion? He means they couldn't touch me. I went into my cell that night, chained to the old soldier that I've been with for the last four years, praising the Lord. I was in glory. I had a glory time. That's what he meant. I was delivered from the land. Not, I'm coming out free to preach again. He knew it was over. Now look at verse 18. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and will save me unto his heavenly kingdom. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He knew exactly what he was talking about. He wasn't talking of deliverance from physical death. He was going through physical death. But he said, the Lord's going to deliver me from every evil work. No compromise. No compromise right through to the finish. I'm going to go right through and I'm going to have an abundant entrance into the kingdom. Why? Because I'm trusting the Lord. Well, I think that's rather wonderful. What does it mean? It means that we shall... No, a deliverance from fears, from cowardice, from compromise, from failure, from all that would lead one to lose faith, grow cold, or deny Christ. It's more than even that, a deliverance from Satan, and from evil men and evil works, an abundant entrance into the kingdom. So Christ has told us what does not constitute the sign of the end time. 
marked only what are the first birth pangs of the coming birth. Well, dear friends, I don't know what you feel like, but I have a shrewd suspicion that we're already in that period of the birth pangs of a coming birth. Now, just as we finish this evening, I thought we'd just show you a five or seven, I think it is, slides. I'm not going to spend long on them at all. I was just going to rush through them. And you'll just see uh, these pictures of a model of the temple, which will give you some idea, I think, of its beauty and its size. You can't get any idea, of course, from people because they're not there. And then three pictures of the stones that remain, uh, which give you just a little idea of what the Lord was talking about. Lord, teach us, we pray, to take thee at thy word. When thou didst speak about the destruction of that temple, so few really believed it. And although thy disciples did, Lord, they found it almost too much to take in. And we must confess, Lord, that when thou dost speak to us about these birth pangs, uh, ushering in the end time, and the sign of the end time, Lord, we almost find it too much to take in. We wonder, well, can it really be? But, Lord, give us faith, we pray, because thy word liveth and abideth forever. And, Lord, all that thou said will come to pass. Give us living faith and true devotion, Lord. And may we be those who take heed and have understanding and are encouraged and strengthened to endure and get on with the work. And we ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.